Tom, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Tom, thanks so much. Really uh, flattering remarks, and all of those are true. Um, the, uh, it's actually, I uh, was a cryogenically frozen scientist, and, um, and uh, it was a very important role. I was in the background frozen, and I had ice coming out of my ears and out of my, out of my um, uh, eyes. Um, but I didn't, they didn't tell me, they neglected to tell me that the, uh, my, my cryogenic cell was not actually air conditioned. Uh, so uh, I was Sweating. dying of heat in there. So, but anyway, it's a very important role. Um, <laughs> All right, I, I do also want to um, uh, thank uh, Tom so much for uh, helping me get back here, uh, Jerry, uh, everybody else who've uh, uh, recruited me back here. I think that this is one of the greatest institutions ever, and I'm really uh, honored and pleased to be here with such great faculty and such great students uh, here. I also want to thank uh, Shelby Collum Davis and Catherine Wasserman Davis for helping make the Davis Endowment possible. Uh, I'll, I'll share another story. My friend, uh, Steve Mariotti, uh, was friends with the family. And, and he was playing Catherine Wasserman Davis when she was 100 and something years old in tennis. And she said to him, she said, don't go easy on me. Don't go easy on me. See if you can really beat me. And so he said, he's like, you know, in his 50s, he's like, all right, yeah, I'm going to do this. And uh, so he ended up like smashing the ball, hitting all over. And he's like, yeah, I'm really beating her. And then the, uh, the tennis pro went up to my friend Steve and yelled at him like, what are you doing? You can't do this for the 105-year-old lady. Um, but he's like, she told me to do this. Uh, so I also want to thank uh, their uh, daughter, Diana Spencer, who uh, I've gotten to know as well. She's uh, really amazing person and uh, through her diligence of uh, watching over her parents' wishes and uh, encouraging the endowment to uh, uh, sustain over the long run, I, I really appreciate all the work that she has done uh, in addition to her parents. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about the research in my uh, book, Private Governance. And the basic broad question is, how are markets possible? And given that there's always going to be some types of problems, things like fraud, things like predation, what are the institutional prerequisites for advanced markets to exist? So I'm going to summarize the theories, the issues. And then I'm going to give some examples from history and uh, more recently, and then discuss the implications. Okay, so the most common view is when you have a contract, you need the government to enforce it, otherwise the trade will not take place. For those of you who have studied the theory of the prisoner's dilemma, uh, the idea is uh, even though people would have uh, benefits from cooperating, each party has an incentive to cheat with their counterpart, and in this case, renege on their bargain in the contract. So the solution to the average uh, standard scholar is that prisoner's dilemma require government to alter the incentive to uh, provide disincentives against fraud. And these disincentives are going to allow more trade to take place. 
So I'll just give a couple quotes from some famous economists. Uh, Israel Kirzner from NYU says, without enforceability of contract, the market cannot operate. Follows that these market institutions cannot be created by the market itself. Markets require governmental extra market enforcement. NYU law professor Richard Epstein, law becomes critical to be, offer a framework for secure voluntary transactions to take place. One would be naive visionary to believe that markets could operate of their own volition without any kind of support from the state. Nobel laureate Doug North from uh, Washington, St. Louis, he says the same thing. Realizing economic gains of, from trade in a high technology world require a third party uh, enforcer. And Mankur Olson similarly says, most of the gains from trade, like those in capital market, require impartial third party enforcement. Okay, so that's the standard view. Markets cannot solve problems like fraud. Governments are able to, so therefore government enforcement is necessary. Thanks so much. I really appreciate everything. <laughs> All right. Okay, actually, I have a couple more slides here. I'm going to talk about my research, which actually looked at the history of markets with an emphasis on stock markets over the past few hundred years. And what I found was very different from the theories of a lot of these scholars. When you go back and find the history, you can often find something very different. And I'm going to highlight an important point by uh, Berkeley Nobel laureate Oliver Williamson, who pointed out something which I think is very important. He says, most studies of exchange assume efficacious rules of law regarding contract disputes are in place and are applied by the courts in an informed, sophisticated, low-cost way. So this is an assumption he points out that most people believe, but in reality, that oftentimes is not the case. And I'll give you a couple just quick examples before I jump into my historical examples. But I just think we should ask the following questions. Does government have the ability to solve a problem in a low-cost way? So we can't assume the answer is yes. Does government have the knowledge to solve the problem? Are they somehow able to identify the issues and solve them? Does government have the incentive to solve the problem? Is it in their interest? Uh, and then alternatively, can the private sector solve the problem? So from a broad point of view, we should recognize that using government is not costless. It requires at a minimum effort to call on the government to solve your problems. And uh, in many cases, they don't have the resources or even if they do have the resources, it just costs too much to get them involved. And because of this, we shouldn't assume that government is always going to be there and coming in to save the day. And I want to give an example from my own uh, history. Uh, my professor and I went to Prague 15 years ago. And he studied basically the problems of government in transition. And in Prague 15 years ago, the government was highly in transition, it was highly corrupt, and they were underfunded and they couldn't do most things. And that's what my professor studied. And when we went to Prague, he put his ATM card in the machine and he pressed the buttons and didn't get it out in the right order. And the machine sucked his card back in because he thought that he left it, and then it closed. And he's like, oh my goodness, it took my card. What do I do? And so I'm like, all right, Pete, we're going to have to wait until Monday. And his reaction is, 
I can't wait till Monday. That's too long. Let me go talk with those cops over there. And I'm like, Pete, no, don't talk to the cops, especially here. We're going to get arrested. Uh, that's one thing that you'll hear in Eastern Europe. Don't talk to cops. And so he goes up to the cops. He's like, can you help me get my ATM card? Can you help me get my ATM card? And does anybody here think that they helped him get his ATM card? No. They don't have the keys to the vault of General Electric Capital, right? It's just not in their capability. Even if these are the nicest police in the world, they just don't have the ability to solve all problems. And I think that should be our starting point from an, from an analytical point of view, rather than assuming government is always going to solve all problems. I'll give you a couple quick examples and then jump into the history. The t on Monday, <laughs> from General Electric, not from the police. All right, so from, a, from the knowledge problem, uh, a lot of economists like to point out that uh, government officials are not omniscient. And I'd like to ask that question about law enforcers. And uh, I apologize for uh, all of the Occupy Wall Street people who are attending this lecture uh, for making fun of you. But uh, the Occupy Wall Street people were protesting against uh, Wall Street and in economics a couple years ago. And they advocated a lot of economic policies like uh, uh, outlawing credit agencies, debt forgiveness of sovereign debt, commercial loans, home mortgages, home equity loans, credit card debt, student loans, and personal loans. Now, so a lot of economic things they were asking for. But when you ask them economic questions, they didn't really know the answers. So when they asked, What's the federal, who's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, 42% said, don't know. Only 38% could answer. What is the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission? 68% don't know. What is the Dodd-Frank Act? 84% don't know. Now, the regulator, the chief regulator, uh, advocate of regulations is uh, Elizabeth Warren. And she claims without any irony, she says, I created much of the intellectual foundation for what they do. I support what they do. So we've got an example of somebody who's regulating financial markets without really any history working in financial markets, not really any study of economics or finance, and uh, she might not be on the side of Wall Street in this case. The next thing I want to emphasize is the incentives of government officials. So economics talks about government officials oftentimes acting in their own self-interest, Maybe they just don't care. Maybe they want to advance some other interest. And I'll just give uh, the most extreme uh, stereotype. But oftentimes, government police don't care about your problems. Oftentimes, they don't care about facilitating exchange. In some of the more uh, bad examples, they actively go against people who are engaging in exchange. So I want to just highlight that if any one of those problems exist, then we can't rely on government zooming in to solve our problems as they do in a lot of old plays. This is called the deus ex machina that you'll see in a lot of old plays or bad movies where there's all these problems and then in the very end, this crane wheels in the god and the god says, I'm here to solve all your problems. And we shouldn't assume that government is a deus ex machina. That means there's going to be a lot of unmet needs, and private parties have a choice. They can either just deal with it, or they can attempt, attempt to solve it. And I'm going to highlight how attempting to solve problems is often a profit opportunity. 
So this is a true story. I was buying these ties on eBay. It says five ties, multicolored, and they're striped ties. And in reality, what happened? I ended up getting this tie. And it's Paisley. And let me tell you, I can't stand Paisley. <laughs> this was the worst day of my entire life. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything worse that could ever happen to me under any circumstances. So after I got out of my depression, I started making some phone calls. And I called, first I called the president, George Bush at the time. George, can you bomb them? Go get them for me. Didn't, recall, didn't return my call. Then I called the FBI, no response. I called the cops, go get those guys, no response. And so I was then even worse in depression. And to this day, I can't get over it. Now, the, the part about me getting this tie is actually true. But in reality, what do you think I did do? Somebody who knows me, what did I do? I called eBay. Okay, eBay is a private club that creates and enforces rules. Most people know that it relies on reputation mechanisms to ensure that you're going to get what you owe. And if not, eBay has private dispute resolution systems that in this case, I sent a bunch of emails and he didn't respond. Notice here, if the seller hasn't responded, please contact us. So they knew he didn't call me back, and the result was I got my money back, and I kept the tie. So now I have to wear it all the time, which is the only downside. Okay, so eBay, we can think about eBay as a club. Uh, here's a, prof a professor of mine, James Buchanan, Nobel, won the Nobel Prize in 86. A rich guy, by the way, this is kind of interesting. We went out, once went out to lunch in uh, southern Virginia, and he's like, let's go to Hardee's. And his lunch was 99 cents. That was what he wanted to eat, a hamburger. But he has this theory of clubs. And he also has a theory of weighing the marginal benefits of rules and regulations. And I'm going to apply this to a club like eBay and say, does eBay have an incentive to adopt rules and regulations that benefit their customer? And I think the answer is yes. So let's think about. Uh, the quantity of rules, marginal benefits, marginal costs of rules. We could imagine curves looking like this in different ways, but decreasing marginal benefits of rules. Just because some rules are good, you don't want to have a million. Increasing marginal costs of rules. It might be uh, too onerous if you have, to have too many. And within a club like eBay, they're going to weigh the marginal cost, marginal benefits of each thing for the benefit of the user. And we can think about that in terms of maximizing the net benefit of rules. In eBay, they're competing with Amazon. They're competing with your local store. And you only are going to go to eBay if you think that you can trust that market. So they have an incentive to pick the optimal set of rules. And that's an example that you can all relate to. But I'm going to highlight some historical examples which worked basically the exact same way. And these are not just sort of small things. These are not Paisley problems. These are major, major transactions for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I'm going to highlight uh, first some of the first stock markets uh, in 17th century Amsterdam. 
Government thought stock markets was a form of gambling. They thought most of what happened in a stock market was a form of gambling that was used to manipulate prices. And so they passed various laws against most of what went on in the stock market. They said, we're not going to enforce those all but the most simple contracts. Um, nevertheless, traders started engaging in very sophisticated trades. A short sale, where you're trading something you don't own. A forward contract, where you're settling three months or many months in advance. You might just disappear in the interim. Um, options contracts, very sophisticated types of contracts. Other contracts are co called hypothecation, where you're basically getting a loan using stocks as collateral. Securitization, splitting up shares into smaller shares. All of these were unenforceable in courts of law. And why would anybody follow through with a contract, even though they're unenforceable in courts of law? I'm going to answer that in one second. Um, when I get to London, which also had unenforceable contracts, where government uh, basically kicked the stockbrokers out of the Royal Exchange. They didn't like them. They said, you guys are bad, you're unruly. And so the brokers congregated around Change Alley and started congregating in various coffee houses, specifically Jonathan's and Garraway's. And the first famous economist, Adam Smith, analyzed this. He said these contracts are unenforceable, but people engage in them anyway. He says, buying stocks by time is prohibited by government. The law gives no redress. But, he says, in the same manner all laws against ne gaming never hinder it, people buy stocks by time anyway. Yet, he says, all the sums that are lost are punctually paid. So people can't enforce contracts, but they do them anyway. And Adam Smith goes on to say, he says, people who game must keep their credit, else nobody will deal with them. It's quite the same for stock jobbing, trading in stocks. They who do not keep their credit will be turned out and in the language of Change Alley be called the lame duck. Okay, so if you and I interact once and I cheat, you can get upset and say, okay, well, no big deal, there's nothing I can do about it. But if you guys, if you and I are interacting every single day, and I cheat you more than once, you're going to be like, hey, forget you, right? I don't want to interact with you anymore. And so in London Stock Exchange, the precursor to it, which are these coffee houses, they would kick people out. And eventually, they started creating and enforcing uh, private rules within these uh, um, coffee houses. So the first thing they did was they started putting defaulters' names on a blackboard saying, don't deal with that person. Eventually, they said, let's make this a private club where we can kick people out officially. Uh, over time, they had uh, various entrance requirements. You had to be sponsored. And uh, it worked quite well. We can also see tons of other markets evolving in this similar way, informally, through Coffee House. Lloyd's Coffee House was uh, founded Lloyd's of London. Um, Philadelphia Stock Exchange used to be in a merchant's coffee house. In Boston, there was a Shamit Bank was in the old exchange coffee house. New York Stock Exchange, the precursor to that, was a Tontine Tavern and Coffee House. And a lot of these would have private rules and regulations that says, if you want to be a member of the Tontine Tavern and Coffee House, you've got to agree. If not, we're going to uh, kick you out. Uh, Dublin Stock Exchange, Sotheby's, Christie's, all founded in coffee houses. 
Um, let me uh, uh, move on to America. Similar type of history. Uh, in New York, government uh, did enforce basic contracts, but most sophisticated contracts, they didn't. The private exchange created private rules and regulations as an alternative to government rules and regulations. The main thing that they did towards the end of the 19th century were disclosure requirements. So if you wanted to be listed on the big board of the New York Stock Exchange, you had to uh, follow certain accounting uh, rules. You had to register how many shares you had. And uh, this provided assurances to investors. Okay, so all of the modern rules and regulations that we think about being enforced by the SEC, they kind of pre-existed, uh, the important ones rather, uh, by these private stock markets. I'll give you a few more quick examples. In modern times, a futures exchange. Who here would want to make a multi-million dollar transaction with this guy? <laughs> Students? Don't get a tattoo. Uh, okay. Would you trust this guy? I don't think I would. But if you're in a futures exchange, you can make a contract with him or him or any of these people, and you know you're not going to get uh, defaulted on. And is it because government enforces the contract? Actually, a futures exchange, when you make a contract with this guy and he makes a contract with you, both of you are making independent contracts with the, the futures exchange, the intermediary. So the intermediary, the futures exchange, is assuming third-party counter-default risk. So in any case, you know you're going to get what you, what you order. Okay? And the exchange is very good at monitoring third-party counter-default risk. And the uh, amount of problems that happen in these exchanges is extremely low. So this is a very complicated contract. Um, there's potential to lose millions of dollars, and for the most part, all of it goes without a hitch. I'm going to highlight a few smaller examples to um, uh, point out that in your everyday lives, you see this stuff all the time. Uh, I got this cool email this morning. Um, I'm going to be uh, uh, engaging in a business uh, uh, venture with this guy. and. Um, he said, we're going to make $10 million by the end of the year. It's going to be awesome. And I know that if there's ever a problem, I can just call up the law enforcement officials, and they'll just get my money back. So it's guaranteed success. Okay, Think about the internet. There's so much that could go wrong, and you can't track down somebody who's in another country for the most part. Even if you do, how are you going to get the money back? So uh, I'll give you another personal uh, story. Uh, 20 years ago, I bought a, uh, there were these things, back, back in the olden days, there were these things called phone cards, long distance phone cards. And if you wanted to make a long distance call, you had to pay money, and so you could buy a card that was prepaid. And so I ended up buying this card for like $25, and then I'd go and try and make a transaction, uh, a phone call with it, and the, the phone comes like, this is not a legitimate card. And I'm like, but I just spent $25 on this card. And they're like, I'm sorry, there's nothing you could do about it. I call my bank, and like, I'm sorry, we already transferred the money out of your bank, and there's nothing you can do about it. So this is a real problem. And again, I could have called the police, but they would not have helped me, right? And this is a major problem to a lot of companies in the early days of the internet. 
And a lot of companies were being bankrupted by this. Anonymous fraudsters hacking into people's accounts, stealing their money, and then nobody knows where that money went. Right? And so as a solution, we have uh, two people who are now billionaires, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, the founders of PayPal, where they basically viewed this problem as a uh, risk management problem. So rather than saying, hey, we'll call the police. In, in certain cases, they did call the police. There was a case where they tracked down somebody from the other side of the globe and said, this person's stealing from us. And uh, Peter Thiel tells a story of, he says, there was a jurisdictional dispute between the FBI office in San Jose, California, and the FBI office in, in San Francisco. Of who has jurisdiction over Turkmenistan? They just couldn't think how to even start. They even showed them evidence. Look, here's the person who did it. Here's how they did it. And the FBI went to them. They said, OK, here's your evidence. What's a banner ad? So just the most basic technological things. Government didn't have the ability to solve. Their competitors were put out of business. At one point, the, uh, PayPal was losing millions of dollars per month. And their annual revenue was only a couple million dollars. So they were very close to being put out of business. And instead, they uh, created what we can think about combination of artificial and human intelligence to solve the problem of fraud. So when you make a, uh, uh, a transaction, they, before it occurs, have a scoring mechanism to figure out if it's legitimate or likely illegitimate. And they can d detect with very good accuracy whether it's going to be good or not. If it's not, they put a red flag, say to a human, hey, take a look at this. Or sometimes they'll disallow it. They re require you to do more things. Okay, so they dealt with fraud before it occurred. And the more you can pro solve a problem before it occurs, the less it matters when government can't solve it after the fact. Right? So we don't care about these international fraudsters when you can prevent fraud uh, ahead of time. Uh, in addition, now we see uh, credit card companies adopting a lot of these same scoring mechanisms for transactions and pricing uh, them into uh, each transaction. Uh, we can think about uh, uh, losses from fraud in the same way Visa does as losses of profits. And you want to figure out, OK, should you accept an order, reject an order? If you spend too much on manual review, each time you spend money, that's po lost potential profits. So it's highly automated. But you don't want to turn down too many good orders. You don't want to accept too many bad orders. And they weigh, what is this in science? Type 1 errors, type 2 errors? Is that how that works? <laughs> OK, so you've got a very scientific approach to fraud management as a risk problem rather than a legal problem. Um, and, and as a result, we can see these are fraud loss rates um, online have plummeted from 3.2% uh, in the early 2000s to less than 1% today. All right. Um, I'll give you a couple other quick examples, and then uh, we can open up for questions. Um, this uh, not only works with small transactions online, it also works with very sophisticated, modern financial instruments in uh, 
uh, the world today, collateralized debt obligations, mortgage-backed securities. These things are very complicated transactions. And uh, the amount of money just to go through it and litigate it in courts would be so much money. Uh, instead, they rely on uh, private parties to basically oversee these things and to make sure that uh, people pay what they owe. Now, not everybody does, but most people do for the most part. Um, in addition to these financial examples, there's other examples of private rules and regulations. I'm going to highlight a couple physical examples. Uh, we can look throughout history in San Francisco. They've had for 150 years a system of private policing that still exists today. Has anybody seen this movie? Christian Slater and Mila Jovovich, great actors. Worst movie ever. But it's a great movie about private police. It's the only movie about private police, so it's the best movie about private police. <laughs> and today, in San Francisco, there's still a few dozen of these people where you can hire them if you're a store and you don't believe that the private, uh, government police are giving you enough service, you can hire these private police. And they'll show up if you've got a, um, a customer in your store who doesn't want to leave, a, a drunk person, somebody on drugs. Uh, they'll show up. Uh, right away. Um, in, addition, in, in addition to less formal examples of private policing, we can look closer to us and think about all the private rules and regulations that exist around us. So I imagine, based on my interaction with, with uh, uh, the great kids in the room, right? the first person you call if you have a problem, is it going to be the Hartford? police department or is it going to be your RA or all these layers that exist within the university to resolve disputes in a much more uh, courteous manner than might happen with the uh, government police. Okay, So let me just uh, uh, conclude. Private governance, <coughs> private rules and regulations are everywhere in history. They've underpinned very large markets, stock markets in history and in modern times they underpin things like futures exchanges. They exist when transactions are very small, such as with the tie, and it doesn't make sense to go to a government court. They exist with large transactions where businesses don't want to have lots of money tied up in government courts. Um, and they exist in many different ways. So we don't want to just think, oh, OK, there's only one way of solving this problem. Private governance solves things in so many different ways. And I'll just mention a myriad of the ways that you can get people to uh, cooperate with you. You can deal with your friends. You can deal with honest people. You can deal with people multiple times, as they did in the stock market. That can make a contract self-enforcing. You can have a reputation mechanism like they use in the stock markets or on eBay, where if somebody defaults, hey, we're going to tell people about that. You can hire third parties to assume and manage risks, the futures exchange or your uh, PayPal. You can hire third parties to create and enforce rules like the stock exchange. And there's all types of mechanisms that they can use. Uh, the point I'd like to highlight for all of this is whenever people in history saw these problems, they didn't just sit around and say, ah, such is the world. 
Peter Thiel told me once, I, I've gotten the opportunity to chat with him a few times, and he's a great person, and he said, you can look at the world and see all these imperfections and say, ah, that's horrible. Or you can look at the world and say, if we can do some small improvements, there's so much that we can do to make the world a better place. And that's the way that uh, he's been looking at the world, and he's made a lot of money as a result. So I, I do uh, think that optimistic view is quite good. And so to conclude on this last point is that this is not just a few historical examples, but these are examples that have interpenned the most successful markets in the history of the world, that the rules of the market have not come from this exogenous deus ex machina, but the rules of the market have come from the market. So thank you very much. I appreciate your time.